0: Okay, last week we had very little forward progression uh, through the, uh, Paul's letter to the Colossian believers. Uh, and it was largely because we, we spent our time really looking a little bit more at the issue of substitution and identification. And they're both very important uh, aspects of our uh, salvation Uh, Most believers, or I, I tend to want to say all believers, understand something of the substitutionary work of Christ, but many don't understand about their identification with Christ. Substitution says that Christ died for us, whereas identification says that we were identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And this becomes very important in that, It is the basis of our freedom uh, from our bondage to the old realm and our um, involvement uh, in the new. Now, throughout the course of history, both of these have been attacked by uh, false teaching. Uh, In fact, uh, Jonella and I uh, were on a trip last week and we were uh, while we were driving, we were listening to a series of podcasts uh, that deal with the uh, attack that's going on uh, today on what's uh, in theological circles known as the penal substitutionary atonement, uh, that uh, Christ bore our penalty in order to uh, satisfy God's. Uh, righteous and just demands so that we could have a relationship uh, with Christ. And there are those today, there are those false teachers who are trying to say, uh, no, uh, Christ didn't uh, bear our guilt. He didn't pay our penalty because God, uh, God's justice didn't demand this, that God being God can simply forgive. And there is no need for this, this payment and uh, those who uh hold to this view oftentimes say well it's a new concept that uh the uh, the idea of Christ substituting for us uh didn't even exist in the early church that it began with with Calvin which would have been in the uh, 16th century uh and yet this uh, individual that we were listening to actually goes back to the, it starts out by going back to the early church fathers and showing that from the first century on, there were those who wrote in a way talking about uh, Christ's substitutionary work. And these false teachers can get away with claiming that it wasn't uh, taught before Calvin because Uh, Very few Christians have ever read the ancient church fathers. Uh, Very few have gone back and read what somebody in the second or third or fourth century wrote. And so a false teacher comes on the scene and he says, hey, those guys back there didn't hold to this. And people believe them. Uh, But those who go back and look at the early church fathers do find that the idea of substitution was there, and then this, uh, in these podcasts, he looked at how, throughout the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, we see the necessity uh, for uh, the debt to be paid, and then he looked at the Book of Romans and uh, and, and how it supports this, and. The truth of the matter is that the scriptures are very clear on the fact that Christ did die as our substitute. Now, that's an area of an attack that is going on today, but that's not the area that Paul is dealing with in this letter. In this letter, Paul is really dealing more with attacks in the area of of what we would call identification truth. Because Paul is not dealing with those who were saying that Christ had not died for them. What he's dealing with is those who would say, you need something else. That it wasn't enough just to have uh, Christ's substitutionary work we need something besides christ uh, to to live, and as we 've seen, there were those who looked to uh, Greek wisdom, those who looked to early forms of of Gnostic knowledge, uh, and uh, there were those who who were looking to uh, uh, Judaism and particularly the law, and really, the largest uh, portion that Paul devotes to the false teaching seems to be devoted to uh, that of the law, uh, and really historically this has has been a big area in which the church has struggled uh, oftentimes uh, if believers don 't look to the law and when the definite article is used it 's talking about the Mosaic law. Um, There are believers who don't look to the law, but they create their own law system. And uh, any law system really relates to the old man, the old nature, uh, the nature we uh, received from Adam. And uh, it appeals to the flesh. The old nature, the fleshly nature, loves law. It thinks that if you just tell it what to do, it has the capacity to go and do it. And of course, that's what uh, Israel thought. Uh, there at Mount Sinai, uh, they uh, said, basically, Lord, just tell us what you want us to do, and we'll do it. There in Exodus 19, and God told them, He gave them 613 commands and prohibitions, which they spent the next 2,000 years failing uh, to obey. And so, you know, uh, we've seen uh, how some look to Greek wisdom, some look to Gnostic knowledge, some look to uh, law systems. And in Colossians 2.23, Paul says, uh, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. He says, look, certainly these things look good. They, they seem to have the appearance of something that would make a difference. And that's the thing. Some of these law systems, they sound like they would work. You know, if you just do this and this and this and this, everything will will work out great. But it's on the assumption that they can do it. And that's why Paul ends this verse by saying, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. He says, look, they sound good, but they don't work because the flesh will never work control the flesh and we see that over and over and over again in fact um, uh, even in legalistic circles there's a lot of immorality why? because the flesh is going to ultimately serve the flesh now as we move into Chapter 3, we're going to be moving into the final section of uh, this letter. And we're going to be getting into the section that deals with, uh, really, the practical outworkings of all this. But really, uh, to me, the the first few verses of Chapter 3 kind of bring us in, into the, a transition. Okay. Uh, There have been those who have been led astray by false teaching. But now Paul is, again, writing to faithful believers, those who have not. He's trying to encourage them to remain uh, true to the faith. And he starts out in verse 1 of chapter 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, this word, if, doesn't say, well, it means maybe. It means more of sense. In fact, in um, Kenneth Wiest's um, translation, and Wiest was a kind of a well-known Greek scholar, he, uh, instead of using the word if, he says, in view of the fact. In view of the fact, that you have been raised up with Christ, you know, given this reality that we have been identified with not only his death, but his resurrection, since, uh, uh, in view of the fact that you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now here in verse 1, Paul again reminds us that our identification with Christ has not merely left us dead in relationship to the world. It has made us alive to a whole new realm. And this is something that's really, really important to grasp. I've known believers, all too many believers, who, who are focused basically on, on considering themselves dead to the old. But that's as far as they go. We are not to function as those who are dead, but as those who died to one realm and are alive to another. You know, there are those who who take Romans 6 and where Paul said, reckon you there for yourself to be dead indeed unto sin. And they stop there in their thinking. And their focus is on, I'm going to consider myself dead to sin. I'm going to consider myself dead to sin. Their focus is still on the sin. And Paul is saying, look, count in Romans 6, he says, consider yourself dead to sin and alive unto God. The Christian life all too often is seen from kind of a negative perspective. We are not, this is what we're not to do. We're not to do this, we're not to do this, we're not to do this. But in reality, the Christian life is a life of replacement. We turn from certain things, but we turn to something else. That which is done away with is replaced by something far better. And we are to see ourselves as dead to the old realm, or having died to the old realm, and now we are alive to a whole new realm. We aren't identified with a dead Savior, We're identified with a Savior who died and who was resurrected and now is ascended on high and seated at the right hand of the Father as our great high priest and advocate. So it's not a matter, therefore, of us simply avoiding to look to the world for wisdom or look to a law system to guide our lives. We need to be looking more and more to the heavenly realm. Paul says that we are to keep seeking things above. Why? Because he says there that's where Christ, our source, is seated. He is seated in the heavenlies. That's where our focus needs to be. Our minds are to be focused on heavenly things rather than earthly things. Again, Why? Because we have been identified with Christ's death to the earth, earthly realm. And we are now uh, identified with his life in the heavenly realm. And we're told that our new life is hidden with Christ in God. Now W.E. Vine states that the Greek word translated life in this passage is used in the New Testament as a principle of life in an absolute sense. Life as God has it. The kind of life that the Father has in himself. The kind of life that Christ, the incarnate Son, has in himself. And Paul speaks of, you know, us... Having this life, this very life of, that God possesses, and it is hidden with Christ. Now, I can think of at least three things that this would signify. First of all, it involves an aspect of secrecy, our life is hid. And because it's hid, it's not fully seen right now. You know, when we walk down the street and people look at us, they don't just see God's life. You know, uh, it's hid. Now, and because it is hidden with Christ, it is really only going to be revealed to the degree that Christ is being revealed. And because Christ is not physically present in this world, much of what goes along with this new life that we have remains concealed. And it will not be fully revealed until he is one day revealed in all of his glory. It's only when we are in his presence that we'll come to fully understand and embrace all that has been ours since the very moment of salvation. It's only then that we'll fully grasp um, what God has given us. You know, Scripture talks about us having eternal life. And and oftentimes we think of eternal life from uh, simply from the uh, perspective that we will... Uh, Live forever. And yet, we will exist no longer than the unbeliever. They're going to exist forever, but in eternal judgment. Uh, eternal life is more than everlasting life. Eternal life is the very life of God given to us. And we received that at the moment of salvation. And we will possess it throughout eternity. But the full uh, implications of that have not yet been seen in us. will only be seen in the future. But we're told in Romans 8, 19 that the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. It says creation is watching longingly, waiting for the day. When we are fully revealed for what we are and have in Christ. Now secondly, the fact that it is hidden with Christ, and with Christ is the optimum phrase there, indicates that it is safe. W.H. Griffith Thomas writes, It is also hid in the sense that it is incapable of being touched or hurt by any evil power. I like what Miles Stanford uh, says about this. He says, the only thing that can be harmed is that which has to go away anyway. The only thing that can be harmed in you and me is in the areas that will one day be gone. Our new life in Christ may be hidden, but it's hidden in a safe place. It cannot be touched. It cannot be harmed by sin. Uh, It's been deposited in the most secure place it could possibly be put. And then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, since that is where it is hidden, that is where it will be found. Uh, a number of years ago when I was teaching through this uh, there at the Bible Institute. I went in before class and I uh, hit a $10 bill and I told the students I will give it to the first person who can tell me uh, precisely where it is. And I had a lot of different uh, students guessing different things and finally one young woman raises her hand and she said it will be found precisely where you hit it. And that was the correct answer. And I gave her the $10. Because where something is hidden is where you will find it. Now, and that seems like a simplistic answer, but it's an important answer. Today, people are trying to find meaningful life in all the wrong places. They're searching here. They're searching there. You know, if I just had this relationship or I've just had this job or if I, if I just had this or I just had that. And unfortunately, this isn't just true of the unbelieving world. Many believers are searching for life in all the wrong places. <clears throat> and God has said, look, I'm, you have li- I have given you life. The very life that I possess. I've given it to you, but I've hidden it. I've hidden it with Christ, but I've told you where I hid it. And that being the case should encourage us to make Christ our focus. You know, we, rather than looking for life in all the wrong places, we need to be uh, setting our uh, minds on getting to know Him. That's why at the beginning of uh, Colossians, I handed out this little uh, bookmark, which says, Come to the Word for one purpose, and that is to meet the Lord. Not to get your mind crammed full of things about the sacred world word, but come to it to meet the Lord. <clears throat> Make it to be a medium not of biblical scholarship, but of fellowship with Christ. Behold the Lord. The more we focus on Christ, the The more we will discover this life that's hidden for us. And the more it will begin to be manifested in and through us. Now, Paul goes on to remind us that this life might be hidden, but it will not always remain hidden. Verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then will you also be revealed with him in glory. Now the day is coming when Christ will reveal himself to this world in all his splendor. Of course, he'll reveal himself to us first through the rapture. But the day is coming that he will reveal himself to the world. And uh, we. And, uh, this comes out in two passages, Revelation chapter 10, verse 7, and Matthew 24, verse 30. In Revelation ten seven, John writes, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Now, Throughout the course of history, man has been able to deny God because despite the fact that God does show himself in creation and despite the fact that he does reveal himself through his word, he nevertheless has remained a a mystery in the sense that because we can't see him with our eyes or... hear him, uh, or smell him, or sense him with our five senses. We can, you know, mankind can deny his existence. And we live in a day and age, especially in this country, where more and more are trying to do that. But in Revelation 10, uh, John says, look, there's a day coming when the mystery is going to be removed, when God, when the curtain is going to be pulled back and no one will be able to deny the very reality of God. And I think this relates back to something Christ stated in the Olivet Discourse back in Matthew 24, verse 30, where... He states, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Christ, you know, was responding to uh, being questioned by his disciples about uh, what was going to, you know, Uh, transpire before he returned. And he he goes into a number of things, but he points out that right before he returns, or his return would involve the nations being able to see him. And he's not talking about the rapture of the church here, which will be a joyous time for us. He's talking about him coming as judge, and it's a, a mournful time Uh, For the nations. So Christ is one day going to be fully revealed. And just like he is going to one day be fully revealed. So is our new life. And in 1 John chapter 3 verse 2. The apostle John writes. Beloved now we are the children of God. And it has not yet uh, not appeared as yet what we shall be says, we are the children of God, but it's not yet fully seen all that we are going to be. We know that when he, that is Christ, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. He says, when Christ returns and we actually look upon him, then we will be like him. Why? For we shall see him as he is. I, I think that's a, that little uh, phrase at the end is so important for us to keep in mind. John doesn't say, when Christ returns, God will finally give us everything we've been lacking and then we'll be like him. No, John says, when Christ returns, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And I am of the persuasion that here in this lifetime, the more we come to see Christ as he is, the more we will be transformed into his likeness. We will never see him fully as he is while we live here in this sin cursed world, in these sin cursed bodies. But the more we come to see him with accuracy, In a deep, personal, intimate way. Not simply in a factual way. But the more we come to see him as he is, the more we will be transformed. And I think history has borne that out. When you look back at history, and you look at the men and women whose uh, spiritual lives stood head and shoulders above Uh, Most believers, you will find men and women who had come to know Christ in a very deep, personal way. You know, some years ago when I was in Bible college, a fellow that was speaking in chapel one day spoke on the fact that there are no spiritual giants, just small Christians. And his point was, all too often we look at certain men and women that the Lord has used mightily in the past, and we put them up on a pedestal and we think of them as giants. But giants are abnormally large. And these men and women aren't abnormally large in the in a spiritual sense. They are just men and women who have come closer to reaching their spiritual potential. And they look to like giants alongside those believers who are still very much infants in their knowledge of Christ. The more we focus on Christ, the more we will be changed by him. Now, L. and I have been married for 49 years, working on our 50th. And when we first got married, we were as different, as the Irish would say, as different as chalk and cheese, which is pretty different. And we're still different in our, very different in our personalities and things, but when it comes to our values, you know, our goals, um, things of that nature, We have become more and more at one. Why? Because as we've got to know each other, we have impacted each other's lives and our ways of thinking, our ways of seeing things. Now, in our case, uh, there has been movement on both sides. In our relationship with Christ, Christ can't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But you really can't get to know him in a deep, intimate way without his heart beginning to influence your heart. Without his mind beginning to influence your mind. Without his values beginning to influence your values. See, the more we see him as he is, the more he will change us. But we must keep in mind that uh, the full revelation of our new life will not take place until Christ, our source, himself is revealed. If we lose sight of that fact, uh, we can make the mistake of trying to bring it to pass by other means. And it appears that this is what was happening with some of the believers there in uh, Colossae, they were becoming impatient. They, you know, thought, okay, we need something else. We, there's something we're missing. Rather than just keeping looking to Christ and getting to know him and letting him shape them, they began looking outside to other means. And if we don't keep in mind that the Christian life is a journey that will not be completed until we are in his presence, we can fall prey to looking for shortcuts. And those shortcuts will never be able to do what getting to know Christ does. So we need to be on guard. We need to, you know, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. You know, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, we have that great chapter of men and women of faith. This cloud of witnesses. And, you know, as uh, the writer of Hebrews moves into chapter 12, he said, you know, let's put aside those things that So easily beset us. And he says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Our life of faith begins with Christ, but it's also. Made complete as we continue to keep our eyes on him. The enemy would have us get distracted by any number of things. And they can be a lot of good things. But anything that draws us away from Christ. Is going to be a deterrent. uh, In our Christian uh, development. Now. That brings us really to the next and final section of the letter. I'm not going to take that on today. It brings us to a good stopping point. But Paul is now going to go on to deal with the impact of the truth that he's just described. He's going to begin to show how as we... Come to see ourselves as having died to sin and alive to God, and we learn to put off the old and put on the new, how it is meant to manifest itself in our daily lives. So let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you just for the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is our source. Lord, we thank you that You have given us Your very life, life in the fullest sense but Lord, you've hidden it safely with Christ and told us where it's hidden so that we might uh, search for it in Christ, getting to know him and letting him transform us. Lord, we just pray that day by day, month by month, year by year, we might grow in our relationship to him, that we might abide in, As branches of the true vine. And that as we abide in him. That his fruit would be produced through us. First in his precious name we pray. Amen.